She's passionate about telling stories of amazing women who are rocking the world and empowering women to live, love, and thrive. Here's your host, Katherine Gray. Hi, welcome to Live, Love, Thrive, Women's Empowerment Hour, brought to you by 360karma.com. My amazing guests today include uh, the internationally renowned scholar Gail Dines, who created the uh, organization called Culture Reframed, which focuses on how porn impacts young people. And then later in the show, uh, we're going to be speaking with Robert Rabin, who is a cancer survivor. He uh, also is an author and a globally known speaker. So we'll be talking to Robert later. But first up, please give a warm welcome to Gail Dines. Hi, Gail. Hi. How are you? Good. A pleasant to meet you. Yeah. Good to have you in from Boston. Yes, I'm yeah. happy to be Although here. Although I know that's not a Boston accent. No, it's an English <laughs> accent, as you right. can well tell. Yes. Right, right. So you were born in England. I was born in England, lived mm -hmm. in England till I was 21, then moved to Israel for seven years. Right. We lived in Israel for seven years, and then my husband was offered a job for a year 30 years ago. So we came for a year 30 years ago, and here we are still in Boston. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you, um, at what age did you head over to uh, Israel? I, I know you were like 20 or something? 21, yeah, 21. straight after our first degree. Right. Uh, we went to Israel to live, um, and then we joined the peace movement in Israel, and things right. were not exactly... it was exactly the 60s, right? No, 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 it was, oh, it was oh. late. Oh, no. Do I look that no, old no, to you? No, 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 I was, no, just gonna I was say. thinking you said you grew up in the 60s. You must no, have no, been as a kid. No, I went, I went yeah. older, no. Yeah. Um, it was actually around the 80s, and yeah. things were sort of starting to turn. Um, we joined the peace movement and things were difficult it was a difficult yeah. time in Israel my husband was in the army that was difficult oh, wow. I had a 10 month old yeah. um, alone in Israel with my husband in Lebanon oh, my so gosh. it was a very stressful period wow. and then when he came out of the army he was offered a position with the company he was within Israel for a year as I say right. he then changed his profession he yeah. went to the Harvard Business School and got a doctorate and now he's a professor as well Wow yeah. so you told me you grew up in like a, a middle-class Jewish family family mm -hmm. in England mm -hmm. and then but it was really uh, moving to Israel that was really life-changing for you right well I think if you want to ask what was life-changing for me and it would have been anywhere in the world it was yes. discovering feminism right that was the life-changing right. but that happened in Israel well that right. actually happened at university in England when I was doing my oh, degree in yes oh. and I, I know you heard a speaker that uh, that was in Israel you. yeah that was kind of the second yeah. level but the first level was really sitting in a cafe in London yeah. reading a book by Andrew Dworkin and it's like my life kind of I was like, couldn't believe what I was reading because right. suddenly everything made sense, you right. know, and everything went click, 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 click. This is right. why, you know, this is how your life and this is what you've been looking for wow. your entire life and you didn't realize it. And I was at then, I think, 19. Wow. And then when I went to Israel, um, I worked at the Rape Crisis Center. I was also doing research and I was writing my dissertation for my now, doctorate. that epiphany that you had in England when you read that book, did that have anything to do with you going to Israel? No, or? no, no, it was completely just, separate. Yeah, yeah, that was going to Israel was more. Yeah, what, the, what drew you there? Well, what drew us there was, you know, I was brought up post Second World War Europe mm -hmm. into, I would say, when looking back, a, a sort of a community of people with trauma because it sort of began to realize what Hitler had done right. to the Jews. 
And we were never, we were taught not to trust non-Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And we lived in a very close Jewish enclave. Wow. And there was a lot of anti-Semitism. Right. I, I mean, this was in, in, in England. England. And what part of England was Manchester. that? Manchester. Oh, in Manchester. I remember many times, you know, the kids dancing around me calling me Jewish pig in elementary school. Oh, my gosh. And then a really profound story was, um, we, there was, I belonged to the Jewish Society at university, and there was about, eight of us Jewish students went out to a pub in Leeds mm -hmm. and I don't know how the people around knew we were Jewish but all of a sudden the pub spontaneously starts singing we can smell gas and it was like you know now you are like a student 18 and everyone around you is suddenly singing that oh and it was gosh. and that was just one of many stories so oh, wow. um we decided i met my husband young we were 18. So you decided israel might be a more yeah hospitable place welcoming yes. place yes. obviously yeah. uh, and we went there and it was in many ways you know i sort of came of age as a feminist as an mm -hmm. activist as a scholar in mm -hmm. israel and um, I started my first feminist movement in Israel at 22 in wow. my living room wow. called um, Isha La Isha, which means woman to woman, which still exists. Mm -hmm. And now I have even have a building and everything. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so, so it really took that. off. And then wow. um, I became a research assistant for someone working at the University of Haifa. And I was writing my own doctorate. And then somebody mentioned that there was a an feminist anti-porn slideshow. Do I want to go and see it from the United States? I thought, now, why not? At the time, you're working for the Rape Crisis yes. Center, and you get invited to hear this speaker talk about pornography. Pornography okay. from a feminist perspective. Because I know this was like your second epiphany or life-changing. That's right. And I know, go moment. and I could not believe what I was seeing. I right. couldn't believe the level of violence in the images. Right. It was just stunning, and I, I was like 22, and I. I'd had quite a sheltered life and I just couldn't believe it. And I thought, A, how do men make this? And B, how do other men find it arousing? Right. And that night, that changed my, my entire trajectory of my life. I went home and I called my uh, dissertation advisor and I said, I'm changing my dissertation. I'm focusing on pornography. And mm -hmm. I think I wrote the first ever PhD on the sociology of pornography in England 30 wow. odd years ago. And um, I used kind of, at the time, what was called um, critical cultural studies, which was coming out from Marx and, and French Marxists and Italian Marxists were developing these theories. And I applied those to a study of pornography saying, you know, if people argue that under capitalism, you need to legitimize why you oppress working-class people, then why can't we argue the same thing about patriarchy, that in fact pornography is the tool by which we legitimize the oppression of women wow. in patriarchy. So I applied that theory yeah. and I did the case study of pornography. And so that's been your life work. Absolutely. And, and I say it got me. I didn't, it got me. Right. It found me. Right. And it, w it was your purpose absolutely. to shed some light on this and absolutely. I think research I, yeah. it. And, and it was just um, and also to be an activist it wasn't just right. that i mean right and i was lucky enough when um i came to the united states and mm -hmm. i was writing my doctorate to get a job at wheelock college which is a small college in boston mm -hmm. whose mission is very unusual the mission is actually to um improve the lives of children and their families right and i got this job and um, they were very, very supportive in right. the early years and really helped me become a kind of thought leader and public intellectual. I got tenure very easily at an early age and mm -hmm. the college was very supportive. And you're currently a professor there? I am, at, uh, yes. Wheelock College. Yes, and yes. chair of the American Studies Department as well. Wow, and you love that? Yes, but uh, I'm also now 
also moving into the nonprofit world as well. Right. So and that's uh, with Culture Reframe. That's Culture Reframe. Now, when did you create that entity? Well, that's got a history. So that started first around 2007 because what was happening was that I was going, and I've been on the lecture circuit mm -hmm. since I first got here, going to universities, and I would talk about pornography and its impact. And this was pre-internet. In, pre so right, you've got to realize right. we're not even talking about anything. It's only gotten more rampant you, since. Um, um, yeah, so we're much gonna worse. We're going to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I was going around and I was realizing I was kind of traumatizing people because I was talking about, I was showing the porn, <coughs> not too much, but just even a small amount and right. the impact. And then when the internet hit in 2000 and I had to sort of revamp my slideshow, and had to start looking at what was mainstream porn. And, it, right. and you know, this is not your father's playboy, believe me. Right. I was going around lecturing and I was finding that people just didn't know what to do with themselves, right. literally, afterwards. Right. So we started an organization in 2007 called Stop Porn Culture, which was a particularly activist, feminist-based organization. Mm -hmm. And then what happened was we weren't getting that much traction. And in 2012, after my book Pornland came up, I was invited by the Icelandic government to go to Iceland by the Minister of the Interior. And I was set up to meet five different ministers, like mm -hmm. Education Minister, Health Minister, Minister for Gender Equality, if you wow. can imagine. Yeah, that wow. was my response. Wow. Yeah. And as I'm on the plane, I'm thinking, you know, how am I going to sort of build a narrative that pulls together all these people? Right. And what became clear was public health. Mm -hmm. Because the beauty of public health is that it brings to the table people who normally would not sit and speak to each other. Right. And so when I went to Iceland and spent five days going, you know, speaking th at the government and at Reykjavik University, mm -hmm. um, when I came back, I sat down with people from Stop Porn Culture, a lot of uh, medical people, and thought we're going to rebrand ourselves as a public health organization. Mm -hmm. And we're going to move into looking at pornography from a public health perspective. So we pull together, again, people who normally would not sit down at the table, anti-violence experts, pediatricians, gynecologists, youth workers, parents. And we said, well, what do we really need? What is missing? And it was very clear to me after lecturing all over was that, and I'll give you an example of a particular thing that really for me was um, a game changer. So I'd just gone to a very well respected um, hospital to give a talk to doctors. Mm -hmm. And it was mainly women. And there was about 250 women in there. And they all came in at 9 a.m. as professionals. Mm -hmm. By 9.15, they were all mothers. Oh. Couldn't get them back to being. So I thought, because okay. My, my first thought, it, it, to me as a, a person that's not involved in that world, is that I probably don't know very much about it. And, that, and what you're saying is, I would think that porn is not a, a, in their everyday life, That's these right. female doctors. So I can imagine the shock of you exposing this to them. When they've got 10-year-old, 11-year-old kids right. at home and 16-year-olds right. who they've never spoken to right. about. So them. in other words, as mothers and, and, and our listeners out there who are mothers probably aren't aware of these statistics you and I are going to talk about that yeah. are just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. um, probably weren't aware of what the content is, about how it is uh, typically so uh, destructive toward women. Uh, and the and boys who use it. I right, mean, that's the other right, thing that we need to talk your, about it. Your studies. Yeah. So I think the first shocking statistic mm -hmm. that is that the average age of first viewing porn is 11. 
for boys. For boys. Uh -huh. And that is you put porn into Google. Mm -hmm. And the only way really today you get it is through Google going into the free porn sites. Mm -hmm. And when I say that you get catapulted into a world of sexual violence and degradation, I mean, I can't really explain obviously on the radio what it is, but right. we are talking about almost torture. And this is mainstream. I don't go to the torture porn. Right. I go to the mainstream porn. Right. I follow the breadcrumbs of an 11-year-old boy with no credit card. Right. And what he comes to within 15 seconds, probably 10, because I get to it in 15 seconds, so he yeah. probably gets to it in 10, yeah. is I think this 11-year-old boy is thinking maybe he'll, get, he'll see a pair of breasts, maybe yeah. he'll see sex. Right. What he gets catapulted into is a world of sexual degradation, humiliation, and torture. Right. And we know, for example, from studies, peer-reviewed academic mm -hmm. studies, that 90% of the most watched porn scenes have physical sexual and or verbal violence against the woman. So we have actually right. got so we're studies on that. teaching our young men not to respect women well, from we, these. We're doing yeah. a lot more than that, actually. And, what and I was just going to say, and I, I didn't even know this, but you said a third of all the downloads is porn. Yeah, and porn sites get that's, more that's hits than Netflix, Amazon, from Netflix and Amazon combined, and Twitter combined each wow. month. Wow. So, What's interesting Shocking. about this 11-year-old boy is when he puts porn into Google, think about what he thinks he's going to see. He thinks he's going to see breasts or whatever. He yeah. does not expect to right. be catapulted into it. Into the and darkness. so I began to think, what happens? Because I'm the mother of a son, and yeah. now my son is older. But I was thinking, what would happen if at 11 he put porn into Google and saw a woman you know, being kind of slapped, spat upon, choked, hit by three different men, which is standard porn. And then I... I thought, you know, what would happen is these boys go because they're aroused, normal developmental level, your hormones are, you know, going crazy. And then he is pulled into a world that he did not want to get pulled into. They're mm -hmm. very smart in pornography. They say things like, are you man enough for this? Mm -hmm. Now, what 11-year-old is going to say no? So they yeah. pull him in. And then you think of this 11-year-old boy who thought he was going to see breasts. And here he is watching sexual torture. And the pornographers are saying, we know you like this and this is what you want. So in his stomach is a toxic stew of arousal, shame, fear, humiliation, all those things. Mm -hmm. But of course, he's not talking to anyone about it. Right. And he's aroused. So he thinks, indeed, this is what he wants. Right. So what the pornography industry is doing is laying a trap, much like a, a spider lays one for a fly, right. and pulling him in. And then what we know about trauma, and I think these boys are being traumatized by the violence they're watching. What we know when you look at the trauma literature is if you are traumatized and you do not resolve that trauma, then you keep going back to the point at which you were traumatized, and, which and is going to be the, the point. And this causes an addiction. That's exactly right. You see, right. what you're doing is you're building into the business model of pornography, porn addiction, because the trauma that right. he's living with He's going back again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And then not all boys will become addicted, of course. You know, there's certain preventive factors sure. that, like good parenting can often help. Mm -hmm. But what we know now is that there's a level of addiction of young boys that therapists don't know how to deal with because they're not mm -hmm. trained in it. Right. We know that I get phone calls all the time from parents asking for help. Um, it's a... And basically the medical profession is 10 to 15 years mm -hmm. behind this. The therapeutic 
profession is as well. And I only know this because when I travel around the country, all the stories I hear, and right. eventually, you know, they're called anecdotes, but anecdotes eventually cohere into data when you're hearing the same story. Right. Whether I'm in Australia, I'm in Germany, I'm in Poland. It's around the world. Doesn't matter. Right. I get the same story. Right. And so your mission with Culture Reframed is to educate mothers and parents uh, alike that um, that this exists and how it's impacting their children and to be aware of it. Yes, well, we thought, yes. how, what are we going to do about this? Yes. So we have to build resilience and resistance in kids mm -hmm. to pornography. Right. So in the public health world, how do you build resilience and resistance in kids? Mm -hmm. You build knowledge skills in parents and health professionals. Your parents are always your first line of defense. Right. So what we realized, and I realized, is the parents can't help their kids because they A, don't know what's in porn, and B, don't know their kids are using porn. Right. So what we're building is our first project is a parents program. We're actually building it out now, and it's about to go up in the spring. Okay. And we're building a whole education program for parents, which will be made up of short videos and PowerPoints, downloads. We're gonna have a kind of cafeteria style program. So you're program. gonna educate parents on what to do. Well, first of all, A, yeah. what's important. Yeah. B, how to have the conversations. Right. Because what? how do you even open it up with your 12-year-old? Do you think right. your average 12-year-old boy wants to sit down and talk about porn with you? Right. So we're gonna have examples of best practices gotcha. for conversations. We're also going to explore explain to parents what is happening to the boy mm -hmm. because now there is incredible sci uh, science coming out of um, research looking at how pornography reshapes the adolescent boy's brain. And so this is also to uh, so that they can talk to their child without creating any shame in their Absolutely. child. Absolutely. The kid is shamed say. enough. You don't right. want to add to that. I mean, it's a, you know, uncomfortable conversation to talk about sex with your 10 or 11-year-old kid. And pornography right? is even worse. Right, exactly. Right. Yes. Add to that. That's right. Um, I would think, I just want to uh, roll back to your talking to those women doctors that you said were mortified at what they saw and Crazed, heard. actually, yeah. Crazed, okay. <laughs> what about... A, um, a group of male doctors. What, what kind of reaction do they give to you? Because I'm so interested to see the juxtaposition. Okay, so I'm going to generalize here, which mm -hmm. means that okay. I'm not speaking about every single one. Sure. Just a group. Uh, you tend to get more pushback from mm -hmm. men. Right, I would And think. one of the reasons if some of them have their own history with pornography, mm -hmm. a lot of, that's actually quite a large reason. Another one is, um, I think they themselves, when they were growing up, and they feel their shame, and that mm -hmm. often gets in the way. Mm -hmm. And one of the big problems we found, and we're going to address this on our parents' program, is a lot of the mothers are scared to bring this up at home to the husbands or partners because they don't want to know if he's using pornography. Mm -hmm. So they say to me, if I talk to my kids, does this mean I have to talk to my husband first? Right. And if I do, I'm scared what I'm going to find out. So we're also going to build mm -hmm. um, a unit around how do you have a conversation between the parents mm -hmm. around pornography. Right. Because you really have to be honest about that because the kid right. will pick up any right. sense of um, uh, disagreement between right. the parents. So right. they've got to be on the same page. And does it always happen with the parents? Because not uh, there are many homes where parents are not that you know, stand up to even address this with their children. So where, what other uh, forms do these children have? Is it teachers? Is it therapists? Is it... That's a great uh, question. Great question. You know, 
their friends' parents. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. So I'll tell you, they have one, and this is, again, what we're going to do is keep building out our programs right. to, for teachers yeah. and especially for pediatricians. I would think teachers and pediatricians. And youth workers right. and therapists. Yeah. So I the goal is to... I have to re- expand beyond I the completely parents. Agree with you. Let's face it, there's some parents who just really no, don't care. No, we know. Yeah. We know that. And sadly to say. Yeah. Uh, we know that absolutely from tons right. of research that a lot of kids actually are their parents, parents you know, parenting right. their own parents. Right. So, um, yes, yeah, so the goal is to actually um, build out so that we get to all people involved in a kid's life, which is the public health model, mm-hmm. right? You, so we're just beginning yes. with parents, right. but once we build capacity in terms of both funding, so mm-hmm. if there's anyone out there who is interested mm-hmm. in helping to us develop, we would be thrilled to get in contact with you right. because as a nonprofit, one of the big issues of nonprofit, of course, mm-hmm. is, is, getting an, is finding money. Right. To, so we, people really care about this study and, and, and making this difference in our culture, with these young people, then they have to get behind you so you can sustain the work. And we and a lot of foundations yeah. have, I have to say, mm-hmm. we have been um, funded by some great foundations, mm-hmm. but in the nonprofit world, to be honest with you, there's never enough money. Right. There's never enough. Right. So what, we, and especially as we're gonna be a web-based program mm-hmm. with videos, that's an expensive program. Right, So, but it sounds um, like a really important one. Well, I we're the only group Right. in the world doing this. Wow. Can you believe this? There is right. no other group dedicated to most this. Most people would say that they think that porn is not uh, detrimental to our to to a young boy. I think they think it's just a normal thing. Well, let me say. But I I say that with them not knowing, knowing about the content. And that's why what you're doing is really important. Because um, if you just say porn, you probably think, oh, yeah. my husband's kids grew yeah, up with yeah. it, and now our kids are gonna, and it's just the way it is, young boys like porn. And I would think this would be a normal way that people look at it. <laughs> and it's so interesting, the perspective that you're putting on it to educate people about how detrimental it is and what the content is Absolutely. that they're probably not aware. Like you said, it's not your grandfather's, you know, penthouse. Well, it's also yeah. I want to say one thing that it's even more than that. It is shaping the sexuality and reshaping the sexuality of boys all over the Western world. It is the major form of sex education today. And the reason that's so important what you're doing is because here we are trying to garner women's equality. There's this big women's empowerment movement. That's the show, right? And so that's really going to impede our empowerment of women to not have young men being raised to respect women. I, I see that as one of the biggest Absolutely. Obstacles and not only not respect, what studies show is that the more porn boys watch at an earlier age, the less capacity they have for empathy and intimacy. Wow. And those are the two key things you need to build healthy adult relationships. Right. And those are the th- and healthy adult relationships are the core of a sustainable society. Right. So this is why it's a public health issue. This yeah. is not about this one boy yeah. watching pornography. Right. This is about the very nature of the culture right. that we are going to end up living in. And right. I can tell you, where anyone who does this research and knows how it's impacting boys, we fear 
for the next generation of boys right. and of what the culture is going to look like because right. these boys are going to become adult men mm -hmm. they're going to partner they're probably going to become parents mm -hmm. what kind of parents are they going to be when they've lost the capacity for right. empathy and intimacy and we already have this very patriarchal society as well, we can so. see what's going on uh, mm. right now and uh in order to shift that to more balance what you're doing is so important and crucial it really amazes me that you're the only entity out there doing it i mean that's quite a big uh, boulder agree. to lift i i yeah. agree but you know what but thank goodness you're do. doing it but yeah. that's what you do. think of every major movement mm -hmm. that push boulders uphill that changed lives the yeah. civil rights movement right the feminist movement, mm -hmm. the labor movement, you push boulders up hills to make the world livable. Right. Without us women right. who have been the ones, let's be honest, right. to push the boulders up those hills, right. could you imagine what this world would look like if you took us out of right. the picture? We're you, the ones who do it. Do you have representatives all over the country? Uh, yes. You do? Yeah, um, of oh, course, all great. over the world, actually. We've got groups in Norway, in uh, England as well. Yes, oh, we have that. Great. Yeah, yeah that's we're building great. up and out and internationally. Right. So so if people um, feel that this is something really uh, important to them and that they'd like to know more about it, they can obviously go to uh, culturereframe.org exactly. and learn more about it. And that's how they could get involved. They can support it financially, or I'm sure you need more hands, uh, more whatever feet on the ground. Whatever they can bring. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and wherever, whatever city they're located in, that they could help uh, expand your organization and the knowledge and I guess get this into, uh, like you said, doctors, schools, therapists, teachers. Uh, We're building a movement, yeah. not just yes, an you organization. Are. And that's so everybody out yeah. there, if you're listening, it's culture reframed, like reframing a picture, ed mm -hmm. on the end dot org. Mm -hmm. um, you can get contact us through there. Um, we would be thrilled to have anyone who would like to support us because we are building a movement because what we're doing is we're standing up to the pornographers and we are saying, not on our watch, are you going to hijack our children's sexuality? Wow. That's, thank you for sharing this. Uh, I know you've enlightened me and I hope you've enlightened a lot of viewers and uh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank, thank you for you the work so you're much. doing. It was a pleasure, thank you're you. You're an amazing woman, Gail. Thank you, thank, thank you. Thank you. And we will be right back with Robert Rabin. The Live, Love, Thrive radio show is produced by 360karma.com. Are you a 360 Karma woman? If so, spread the word. Be sure to follow us on social media at 360 Karma Women on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please like us and share us with family and friends. This is the year of the woman, and we are stronger together. The Live, Love, Thrive program is brought to you in part by Honda of downtown Los Angeles, supporting the equality and empowerment of women. And we are back with Robert Rabin. Hi, Robert. How Hello, are Kevin. you? Hello, Kevin. Good. Excellent. Thank you. Good. Well, um, first of all, um, you're a cancer survivor. You're an author. And you're a globally known speaker. And well, I am so happy. That's a little generous, uh -huh. but I don't want to argue with well, you Well, you that. have uh, spoken all over the world. And yes, um, I, have. I, I you. find you to be a very humble, very... Uh, Thank you you know, uh, humble guy, you know. So, I mean, I, I was reading your book, uh, Speak Truthfully, and um, I like the way you set it up because it's about people that you've helped learn to speak and their yes. stories. Yes. 
I mean, their stories are amazing. Uh, yes. I, I, I know one was a, a, a prostitute that changed, turned her life around. Now she's a speaker. Uh, another gentleman shared that he had a lot of catastrophic things in his life, but one of them was being um, leadership expert. He was uh, diagnosed with HIV. Um, And and so um, each of these uh, people are people that you have helped uh, overcome their fear of speaking and uh, are now speaking in different capacities. And you tell their stories in your books, be truthfully, which I think is awesome. And um, what I want to do is share with the audience your amazing journey. So uh, it's been a rather long yeah. one. <laughs> what part of it? You like my last about? guest, you grew up in Europe, in Italy, right? I did, yes. Yeah. Yes. How interesting is that? You were born in Italy? No, one of oh. my sisters. I was born in New York. Ah, but you grew up in Italy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And then um, I know you were telling me, it, it's really fascinating because you were telling me, really, at 11 years old, you had this kind of spiritual epiphany, which is really young. It is yeah. young. And uh, it, it was in Italy. We had gone skiing in Sestriere, which is the Matterhorn, and mm-hmm. I broke my leg. Mm-hmm. And at that time, you got put in a cast from your hip down to your right. ankle, and I was in bed for a month. And with my siblings off to school and I had nothing else to do, I started going through the encyclopedia that we had. Wow. Page after page after page. And... As long as you weren't reading the phone book. No, it wasn't the phone book. Well, I didn't read everything, but right. I was just really curious. And, and suddenly yeah. this overwhelming amount of information right. uh, started to fill in my mind. And anyway, one day through the window of my bedroom, I, I felt and saw this light pour in. Wow. And in that encounter, some questions started to form, which were... Who am I? What is real? What's my purpose? I don't know. You know, and it's so funny. Why, about, some people happened. don't get those questions till they're like 50 or 60. Well, like at 11 years old, for you to be thinking that, it's quite amazing. Courtesy of a bro- I wasn't thinking of it. It just kind of came yeah, to me, courtesy yeah. of the broken leg. And that pretty much set the course of my life to wow. pursue those questions, finding answers, which led me when I was... Uh, early 20s to India, where I met my meditation master with whom I spent 10 years. And so my whole, I guess if we're looking for a signature for my life journey, it would be the pursuit of those questions, Mm -hmm. the cultivation of the awareness from which I could generate those answers. You know, I noticed uh, that you spent 10 years in India and you mm. studied Vedanta, which I recently had a couple on I saw who has show. the Vedanta Institute yes. here in LA. And I had never heard of it before. I understand it's an uh, ancient Indian philosophy. It's so, it's one of the six philosophical systems of India. Wow. Um, it's in, in what's called the non-dual tradition. So I studied that and Kashmir Shaivism and Kundalini Yoga and so on. But basically, I was there to meditate and focus inward, and so I did that for 10 years because I wasn't a very good student. If I were, I probably <laughs> could have gotten it sooner and been on my way, but nonetheless, so. So what possessed you to go to India? Was I mean, what age were you when you traveled to India? I was 
23. 23. That's really young. I mean, I guess it's because you had this spiritual epiphany I, at such a young did, age. It just, yeah. those questions really took root, I have yeah. to say. And uh, Wait, what did your parents think when you left for India and then you lived there for 10 years? What was your relationship with them? It was always, well, my father had died the year before I got to India. I had been oh. living in Europe for a mm -hmm. couple of years anyway. Uh, my mother was always supportive, but I have to say, when from the time I graduated high school, mm -hmm. I was pretty much uh, on my own journey, and was it was very easy for me to let go of anything that I didn't feel was uh, significant or, or or supportive of wherever it is that I was. I lived in Israel for a year. I lived in Europe for two years. I traveled overland to India, where I lived. So I was. <laughs> You were kind of a vagabond. I was kind of a <laughs> vagabond, you yeah. know, a, a spiritual hippie vagabond. This yeah. was, you know, back That's cool. back in the day when it was cool. Yeah. And but but even that whole Were you trying to find yourself and I, find I, those questions I, I of was. who am I? What why I, I am was. I here? Where is my place? Yeah. What is my purpose exactly? That seems to draw a lot of people to India specifically, you know, when they're well, looking for that. Well, I can't say now cuz I'm a little out of touch, but it yeah. but it certainly did for me. Now, just uh, to be fair to my story, I wasn't there. I didn't go to India specifically to look for a guru, which I right. ended up finding. I went on a mountaineering expedition. Mm. Myself and some friends were intending to sneak over the Himalayas, mm -hmm. right? We were going to, this is how bright <laughs> we were. We were going to sneak over the Himalayas into Bhutan. Uh -huh. to a small Himalayan kingdom, which at that time you couldn't get into. And we were going to go to Bhutan and track snow leopards. We wanted to go and live with snow leopards. So that gives you a little okay. bit of an idea <laughs> of what I was up to at the time. Okay. We never made it. I ended up meeting this teacher uh -huh. and uh, thought I would spend a couple of days in the ashram and ended up spending 10, ten years. years. But, what was that like living in an ashram for 10 years? I would take it it's like very zen, very peaceful, you don't have all the no. distractions of the outside world? No? It's not, well, it wasn't a zen monastery, so it wasn't uh -huh. zen-like. It wasn't that peace. We were doing a lot of meditation, but my teacher, whose name was Swami Muktananda, was a very common name just kidding yeah very common <laughs> name that's that's right i named all my kids after him. So he was what what is called in that tradition a shaktipat guru which means he would awaken people's kundalinis mm -hmm. and sounds dirty no just kidding. it well, it wasn't dirty <laughs> you know I've, well, i just need a moment to process i've never heard anyone say it wasn't dirty, but it was extremely energetic and right. powerful. Right. And so the predominant experience that I had over the 10 years mm -hmm. was, yes, a lot of inner peace through meditation, mm -hmm. but the overall experience was one of tremendous energy mm. and all kinds of th things happening through that awakened spiritual energy. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was... It, 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 you said, what is it like? Yeah. It really is unlike anything I have ever experienced anywhere else. So it's just kind of live TV. You would have had to have been there right. <laughs> when it was happening. Well, I mean, so you don't work while you're there, but you work in the is it like work in, in the a, community. In That's the right. Community. Because wow, what an interesting life. It ended up being a very large international educational 
nonprofit organization. Mm-hmm. I became a manager and then a, mm-hmm. a, a later became a vice president. So I was of the of the ashram of the foundation. We oh. had thirty ashrams and five hundred centers. Oh and my gosh! Wow! Became a very very big thing. So I was traveling around working at various managerial capacities. Mm-hmm. Were you speaking then? I was, was I speaking not in the way I did subsequently. I would speak with staff and so on. But mm-hmm. um, what I was learning without knowing it mm-hmm. was leadership and management skills that I later used right. when I became a leadership consultant. Yeah, it's always interesting, isn't it, when you do different things in life and you always and find then, that, oh, that's why I did that yes. because I was going to need it for that's the right. next thing. Yeah, Listening to my teacher speak yeah. is where, again, without consciously learning this or knowing mm-hmm. that I was being prepared for mm-hmm. what the work I would do later, he had an extraordinary speaking style that had a lot to do with where he spoke from because mm-hmm. he was talking about meditation and inwardness and embodied that. And that's where you learned about speaking Without, truthfully? It, it's yeah. where I learned some of the fundamental tenets. So when I did leave the ashram at 35 years of age mm-hmm. and started my work, I was became a leadership consultant, organizational coach, and started out my speaking career as a meditation speaker. Mm-hmm kind of fellow. Mm-hmm. So in those contexts, it was really important for me to speak with awareness, mm-hmm. since we're talking about awareness, mm-hmm. important to speak with a sense of connection mm-hmm. to myself and others, being, and so present. On, being totally present and so mm-hmm. on. So that's I would do that. Then when I started speaking on stages and to business groups and conferences and so on, keynoting, then I began to extend my awareness of speaking more to certainly how do we create content, mm-hmm. but also what they call delivery skills. In other words, when you're on stage or in front of a room, you have what I call the speaking instrument, which is the means through which you communicate your message. The speaking instrument is verbal and nonverbal, is mm-hmm. of course what we say, mm-hmm. but it's how we say it. Right. The use of our posture, our movement, our gestures, our facial expressions, mm-hmm. the rate of our speaking. If I start really speaking fast like this, so it's like, you know, typing, which mm-hmm. people do, you can't understand. So mm-hmm. I began to study all the different aspects of mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. The foundation being to speak with presence and awareness in connection, which is connecting mm-hmm. to yourself connecting to the other. And this is what you've taken to your teaching of speaking. This is how it happened yeah. when I had moved to Australia in right. 2005. I was giving a meditation course and a woman came up after and said, Robert, can you teach me to speak the way you speak? And I love your story about Australia because you'd travel all over. You were speaking all over and you went to Australia. You went home packed and, and went back to Australia <laughs> to live. Like, uh, I mean, you went to visit and you, you decided did. to live kind of like you did with India. I, I did. think you have a habit going there. Well, I know. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and so you yes. had no idea what you were going to be doing in Australia and no. you no more got there and you told me someone walked up to you and said, hey, could you teach me how to speak well, that's like it. you? That's it. I had been yeah. invited to Australia. I was living in San Francisco. Had been invited world. to Australia to give keynotes at a couple conferences. Fine, I'll go down for two weeks. Yeah. 
give my talks, get paid, come back. Right. When I was there, something, another epiphany. I'm a little bit yeah. susceptible, apparently, yeah. to epiphany. Epiphany kind of guy. An epiphany kind of a guy. And I just said, I belong to this place. Right. So came back you and felt as you at said, home there. More than at home, like uh, I was root. I, I was a tree whose roots were in that land. And I yeah. just said, I've got to come back. Came back to San Francisco, packed up, got a one-way ticket back to Australia, no visa, no plan, yeah, not really any money to back that kind of a move, and I just went there. And while I was sorting everything out, this uh, woman came up and said, can you teach me to speak the way you do? Right. And I said, well, let me see. So I made some notes. I kind of deconstructed my speaking style, gave her a coaching session. Right. She called me, I think, two or three days later and said, Robert, there's five people who want you to do a workshop. And that was that. That and was I've been off and running teaching. this full time ever since. And you said it was mostly women. The yeah. public programs that I did in, in Australia were 75 to 80% women. Right. It was flipped when I would work in organizations. There were more predominantly men but the public ones were mostly women and most like of my women business was, owners and um, uh, some and across the gamut but there were a lot of healers people working in women's empowerment movement yeah. uh, holistic healers coaches people like that some right. entrepreneurs some business people um, yeah I was talking to someone uh, a guest uh, earlier th this year and um, she teaches women how to uh, speak publicly okay. and the conversation was how important it is to the future of our equality yeah. that women be able to speak publicly and it's yeah. one of the uh, p most people's greatest fears is speaking publicly yeah. uh, but uh, women especially uh, are fearful of it and and need to be doing it if we're going yeah. to move our uh, women's power mo movement forward yeah. and so whether they're a business owner or a speaker or an author or whatever like for instance TED talks only okay. about 15% of them are women it means 85% of them are not yeah. and so how do we get more women speaking and that's why I love what you're doing yeah. and I remember asking you why is it that a woman would want to work with a man mm. as opposed to a woman? Being a, a women's empowerment person, I wanted to understand that. And I loved your answer that, uh, first of all, knowing that a man has their back. I do. And second of all, that uh, you know the male's perspective. So when they go talk to all those people that run the corporations or the ones that they're dealing with, you are letting them know how to speak to a male perspective. I think yeah. that happened accidentally. Yeah. In other words, if they had issues that were gender-based, for example, yeah. one of the students was worked in a in a government entity, government agency. Right. It was male-dominated, older guys. She was, by her own admission, as a female, she was young and blonde, mm -hmm. working in a male-dominated government entity. Mm -hmm. So to to compensate for what she felt mm -hmm. was inadequacies because of that, she would never speak up, she wouldn't be authentic, she would miss opportunities and so on. And whatever she did say mm -hmm. was so full of compensation and hiding that it wouldn't go over. She came to the course, we did some work, and I think she's in the book, mm -hmm. her story's in the book. And she went back and everything was changed. So a, a lot of it is 
not just so it wasn't the situation but how she was it's handling al it's it always yeah. that the, it, her perspective it's the framing of it it's the feelings we have that if we really show up in an authentic genuine manner we won't be good enough something bad will happen and mm -hmm. so on but the opposite is true the opposite the is strength true. isn't showing up authentically absolutely yeah. but we've got to overcome decades and decades of thinking of the opposite of self-doubt mm -hmm. and self-suppression and so on right where uh, so i don't think that because i was a man uh, um, it made it, it it was what i did notice and what you're talking to is because i was a male and working if the women present had issues that were particularly gender-based as this woman in a male-dominant right. industry, they could, I think, more easily push through with a male coach just right. because the issue was gender-based. Right. I think in that case... It, I can see the value in that. It did work. Yeah. And uh, I think in terms of my facility to coach women, I think the first thing they get is I am totally on their side. Right. I have their back, and I want to hear their cosmic roar. Right. That's what I'm up to. Right. I want them to become free from any pattern of self-suppression, fear, doubt, lack of confidence, right. and just show up and show from a deep place who they are. Right. And, uh, yeah. I have to say, I, I, I absolutely love that. I told you the story when we were yeah, chatting the, last the week. The first about woman that... Uh, the woman who came for two-day workshop, she gave six or seven talks. <laughs> God bless her. Nicole, she wouldn't mind my saying her name. All she did was cry. Right. She didn't say a single word in two days. Yeah, she and I like this story because I could imagine that there'd be people listening who would think, oh, that's what I would do. If I had to stand up in front of a group of people she and was speak, a I would cry. speaker. Yeah. You know, of course, I work with skilled speakers and help them become more effective. But in this right. case, Nicole wanted to start doing her own business and mm -hmm. couldn't. So she came and just stood and I just said, just stand there, cry. It's, your victory is to stand and not sit down. For two days, all she did was cry. I kept giving her my handkerchief. You know, yeah. a, a month later, I got a package from her. It was a nice new set of handkerchiefs. <laughs> Today, yeah. she it, she gives workshops. She's a doula. She uh, works with music to help work with pregnant women and so on. She does workshops. She speaks at conferences. She's got a website. She does fantastic. That's great. So well, the, that's what I love is you help people walk through their fear. It, they walk through their fear and they learn how to use the speaking instrument right. to really impact the world in whatever they whatever way they want. Right. Um, which is really wonderful to to, to find people to, to to work with people who can first access their deep truth and authentic being mm -hmm. and then bring it out fearlessly right. confidently and i'll say skillfully right and i do happen to agree with you when i look out at what's happening let's just say in this country mm -hmm. um come on ladies <laughs> yeah it's yeah. A, it's we it's gotta time. have you we gotta have well we you. need more women politicians All and we need that. more women ceos we in every need. industry but you know it's not just that table. i just got an email from a woman i worked with in australia kate lovely lady she's a mindfulness teacher mm -hmm. 
she came to a few workshops. We did some coaching years ago, and she just sent me this email uh, again thanking me because um, when she first came, she didn't like speaking, mm -hmm. and she didn't do much of it. Mm -hmm. She wrote to tell me that in the last couple of years alone, mm -hmm. she's done scores of talks throughout Australia on mm -hmm. mindfulness. She's led 10 retreats. She's published four books. She has meditation apps that have been heard by, I think she said like 200,000 people. And she said, Robert, there are tens of thousands of people who are now practicing mindfulness through my work Wow! because of the work I did with you. Now, right. please let me say this. I am not taking credit for that. I, I, I but will you're take, bringing up the point I'll take some credit f for creating the space wherein people can rediscover what is innate within them and get my support to bring it out skillfully. But, what I think you let people do, in like for her case, that yeah. was a perfect example, is you help them to be able to deliver their calling or their life's yes. purpose. Obviously, this woman's calling or life purpose is to deliver these meditations and these, and these talks that she couldn't have done if she hadn't overcome the fear. And that's what I fear yeah. is that yeah. so many women uh, have the fear of the public speaking it's holding them back from doing what they're meant to be doing. And they yes. have these gifts yes. to give. Absolutely. Like we're here to be of service and to, and to uh, fill our calling. And if that one thing is holding you back, yeah. well, it, then by gosh, work on it. And that woman who cried in, uh, for the yeah. first six times she did it is a perfect example of persistence. It's like, don't say, I stood up, I cried, I'm done. No, like, she ended up sponsoring through. two workshops for her community. Yeah. So I, um, and we're still in touch today. It, it, that's a little bit of an extreme case, but I mention it just because she had such a heart. Yeah. So it's such a resilient heart and a determination right. to free herself. Right, and that is what it is, a freedom, isn't it? Oh, my yeah. God, look. You know, I went, when I was in India, I was pursuing a kind of existential freedom, you know, self-realization mm -hmm. and all that. Who am I? But I'll tell you, until I started working in this speaking truthfully work and public speaking and finding for myself mm -hmm. and then with others, the free, I mean, the freedom mm -hmm. to stand up and show who you are. There's nothing more powerful or Well, free. look. Yeah. There's nothing like it as far as I've ever experienced so far. Right. And the irony is is that capacity is actually an innate capacity that's been covered over mm -hmm. by a lot of decisions and experiences and patterning and so on, which is really easy to undo. Right. Well, uh, I think the very culture uh, makes people want to put up facades and not let people that's see right. their vulnerable vulnerabilities. That's right. Um, you know, that's, that's what made right. Brene Brown so popular. Uh, her vulnerability out. talk, that's right. Exactly. In my world, I use the word connection a lot. Mm-hmm. Because to me, if we don't have connection, there's no communication. But connection specifically means, just yeah. as you said about Miss um, Brown, intimacy with self, mm -hmm. know yourself deeply, and then vulnerability with others. So you've got to first know yourself deeply, right. and then you open and show that to others. That's the connection. And because mm -hmm. it is so 
visible and exposed, that's really what triggers all of the insecurities. Right. But people can overcome that if they come right. to my classes in two days, right. to be honest. You know, um, the thing about your, uh, I think it's interesting that uh, we haven't talked yet about the fact that you're a stage four cancer survivor for five years now, right? Yep, so far yeah. so good. <laughs> yeah, and um, that that must have impacted you tremendously as to um, the work that you do in, in being present. And I, I remember you talking to me about this, about, you know, you just cherish every day. Every day is a gift and a miracle. Uh, you are a miracle. Thank you. Uh, and so you obviously still have a lot to, to do here um, and with your gift that you're giving Thank to. You to people to help them with the speaking and, and the, uh, being their authentic self. And yeah. I think if there's anything I'd like to wrap up here about what I want people to get out of my conversation with you is there's a lot of people maybe who teach uh, methods of speaking, uh, delivery, presentation, presentation skills, how you stand. Right. But I so think on. the most important thing you and I talked about was uh, is that being your authentic self. Yes. And that's not something that's always taught to people when they're speaking. It's never taught because right. they don't know. They teach a sort of behavioral modification and strategies and techniques, but they don't free you from fear, from lack of confidence. They don't right. free you to bring forth that level of authentic authenticity right and who wouldn't rather be listening to someone that's speaking from an authentic perspective i mean you know Absolutely. you hear a lot of speakers but the ones you really remember because they say it's not what somebody says it's the way they make you feel yes. and so how are you going to make someone feel unless you're sharing in an authentic way absolutely and making an authentic connection right which right. to me is really important. Well, I think the work that you're doing is really important. Thank you. Where can people uh, find out about your book and your website? Miraculously, <laughs> I have a website, <laughs> robertrabin.com. Right, and that's uh, R-A-B-B-I-N for yep. those just listening, that's but it right. is on the screen. That's right. Thank and, you. Um, and send me, I live in L.A., of course, here we are together. Right. Uh, happy to meet anyone. I work virtually, happy to travel, do private coaching, master classes. I'm saying that because I'm a little excited myself to get back out there. I have been a little bit sidetracked. Well, you've been healing. I've been sidetracked yep. with a couple of things, yeah. as you mentioned. Right. And uh, I was recently released, my experience of my illness, I was recently released from that. It's like, okay, to go, go, go do more beautiful go work. Go do this. And I love it. Yeah. I love seeing the transformation. I love the freedom that people have that yeah. they claim. So I am have mouth, will travel. Ready right. to go. <laughs> right. And I think uh, what you're doing is beautiful. Thank and you very much. You have a thank gift, you. and uh, thank, you. thank you for sharing it with so many people and changing so many lives by helping them with uh, speaking. Thank you. My so pleasure. Keep doing the wonderful work. I am 100% will do that. Thank awesome. you, Catherine. Thank you. All right, and we will be right back next week uh, at the same time, Wednesday at noon, here on UBN. So be sure to tune in and visit us uh, on Facebook, uh, 360 Karma Women. Make it a great week. Hugs and happiness. The Live, Love, Thrive program is brought to you in part by Honda of downtown Los Angeles, supporting the equality and empowerment of women. The Live, Love, Thrive radio show is produced by 360karma.com. Are you a 360karma woman? 
If so, spread the word. Be sure to follow us on social media at 360 Karma Women on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please like us and share us with family and friends. This is the year of the woman, and we are stronger together. 